So tonight I will talk about walking meditation and highlight some aspects of walking meditation. Walking is a daily experience for most people. Walking around in the house or in the flat, walking down to the car or to the bus stop, to the train station, walking to the shop, children walking to school or walking out in nature, strolling along um, a lake or hiking up, uh, climbing up a mountain or going on a pilgrimage on foot. So before cars and trains and aeroplanes or even horse carts uh, were invented, people walked much more and they walked much longer distances. <clears throat> so could you imagine a life without being able to walk? I think that would be very difficult for most of us. Walking is an interesting process that we usually do not much pay attention to. As kids, we learn to walk at an age so young that we do not remember how it was actually to learn to walk. As far as we can remember back into our childhood, we simply were always able to walk. It's only after hurting our foot or knee, or maybe after an accident followed by surgery, that we have to learn to walk again. So it's at such times that we realize that being able to walk is such a convenient thing. And we realize that we simply take it for granted. As I said, walking is an interesting process that we usually do not pay much attention to. However, for our meditation practice, walking becomes an important and, as I found, extremely helpful part I do not know how I would have survived my intensive meditation practice had it not been for the walking meditation. The Buddha said that we can practice meditation in four different postures. You know, there's the sitting, the walking, the standing or lying posture. And I think in regard to meditation practice, the sitting posture is the best known. Also maybe because Buddha statues or images 
often show him in the sitting posture. Of course, there are also reclining Buddha statues that show him either resting. And so this reclining posture is, this is called the lion's posture. The Buddha lying on his right side, the head is held by his right, by his right hand, and the left leg is posed on the right leg. Or a Buddha statue in the lying posture could also show his parinibbana, his final passing away. But actually, there are also some very nice Buddha statues that show him in the standing posture, even in walking. In, in retreat, most meditators are not able only to sit all day long. And so therefore, we alternate between walking meditation and sitting meditation. In Thailand, where, especially in um, forest monasteries, where there are little huts out in the forest for the monks yeah, uh, to practice meditation, such a little hut or kuti has always a walking path next to it, so that there is already a path for walking up and down ready for these nuns or monks. So walking meditation is very important. And tonight in this talk, I will talk about the significance of walking meditation, then about the benefits from the walking meditation practice, and as a, first, uh, as a third uh, part, I will talk about its nature, including some of the insights that can be gained in walking meditation. So first of all, to the significance of walking meditation. Walking meditation is an integral part for the continuous development of mindfulness. And as an aside, and for the continuous development of mindfulness is also the moment-to-moment -moment awareness during our activities uh, during the day, such as eating, taking a shower, brushing teeth, getting dressed, and so on. So we can compare or take this comparison of boiling water. If the heat is turned on and off and on and off uh, all the time, then the water will not come to a boil. And likewise, 
in order to have a strong and sharp mindfulness, mindfulness needs to be continuous. So it gains the necessary uh, momentum. And together with mindfulness, um, concentration will also be developed and become stronger. There are meditators who doubt the benefit of walking meditation. They doubt the need of having to practice walking meditation um, in one's practice. These people simply take the walking meditation as a change of posture in order to release pain or to release some tensions. And so instead of practicing walking meditation, they simply go and have a cup of coffee. I think it would be very interesting to have a retreat during which the teachers practice walking meditation together with the meditators instead of leading a sitting meditation. So then the sitting meditation period would be the time to go to the toilet and to have a cup of tea. Imagine how that would be like. The Buddha mentioned walking meditation twice in his discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. It's mentioned in the section called Postures. And there the Buddha said, a monk, a nun, a practitioner knows, I am walking when she or he is walking. And in another section called Clear Comprehension, the Buddha said, a practitioner applies clear comprehension in going forward and in going back. Clear comprehension means the correct understanding of what one is aware of, of what one observes. And to correctly understand what one is aware of, of wh or what one uh, observes, a meditator must be focused or have one-pointedness. In other words, be concentrated. And in order to be focused or one-pointed, he or she must apply mindfulness. So therefore, when the Buddha said, practitioners apply clear comprehension, we must understand that not only clear comprehension must be applied, but also mindfulness and one-pointedness or concentration.
we probably all know that the Buddha became enlightened in the sitting posture when he was sitting under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, present-day India. But many of the Buddha's disciples had the big breakthrough not in the sitting, in the sitting posture, but in walking, where during walking meditation, or even of uh, during the time when they were mindful of general activities. So, for example, Venerable Moggallana, one of the Buddha's chief disciples, he became fully liberated while he was practicing walking meditation. And also, um, a monk called Subhadda became fully liberated while he was practicing walking meditation. He was the last disciple of the Buddha who became fully liberated while the Buddha was still alive. This happened very briefly before the Buddha uh, had his final passing away. Many years ago, when I was staying at the forest center of the Chamyayeta Meditation Center in Burma, that was a bit outside of Yangon. At that time, I took care of the foreign meditators who came to that center and also translated in the interviews with the Burmese Sayadaw teacher. And at that time, we had a French yogi who loved walking meditation. She really loved it to the degree that she could easily practice walking meditation for three hours at a stretch. And yeah, she had very good experiences. Uh, in her walking meditation practice. The Buddha mentioned five benefits that can be gained from the practice of walking meditation. And this exposition or this discourse can be found in the Anguttara Nikaya. It's simply called the benefits of walking meditation. And four of these five benefits are related to our physical condition. They are related to our health. The Buddha was well aware that a healthy and fit body is a supportive condition for our practice. And of course, the Buddha also knew that the penetrating understanding of the Dhamma can also happen during walking meditation. Then the fifth benefit that he mentioned is more closely linked 
to the establishment of wholesome ma uh, mental states. So these are the five benefits gained from walking meditation, as mentioned by the Buddha. The first one is, one is able to walk long distances. And at the time of the Buddha, this was very important. They didn't have uh, public transport. They didn't have cars or bicycles to ride. So they had to walk. And they actually walked quite a bit. And I've come to experience this first benefit myself. Because when I first went to Burma in 1992, I didn't think that I would stay in Burma for such a long time as it then uh, happened. I thought maybe three months or so. And therefore, I had already planned a trip to Ladakh, the Indian Himalaya, with my friend for the following year. So I was in Burma in the meditation center and practiced meditation with Sayadaw Ujjanaka and alternating sitting and walking and doing the walking meditation very slow as instructed by Sayadaw. So basically, and then I ended up staying six months, but then I had to leave because I needed to meet my friend in Ladakh. So basically for the six months that I was in the center, I didn't move faster than a snail. But every now and again I thought, how can I manage to hike in the Indian Himalayas? I will not be fit. You know, I'm just walking like a snail, so no physical exercise. How can I climb these high passes? But then that worry would subside and I would simply pay attention again. Because it, I found it so interesting what was happening and what I was discovering. And so then when I finally left after six months and went to Ladakh and met my friend, I realized that I was really fit, that I could walk these long distances on the tracks, climbing up the high passes, uh, wasn't a problem. The second benefit that the Buddha mentioned is that walking med meditation creates energy. It boosts one's energy. The third benefit is that it is supportive for good health. Good health in general. Because then the fourth benefit is that it is supportive of good digestion. And those of you who have been to Asia and maybe uh, those of you who have had stomach problems or even have them around here, you know how 
difficult it can be for the whole practice of meditation. So to have a good digestion is important and supportive of the practice. And then the fifth benefit that can be gained from walking meditation is the fact that it establishes a long-lasting concentration. Especially this last benefit is an interesting one and a very helpful one. From my own experience, I have come to realize that the concentration gained from a focused walking meditation was really stable and lasted for quite a long time. It's a bit harder to establish good concentration during the walking because there seem to be more distractions, because necessarily our eyes are open. But when I was able, for example, to restrain my eyes and really be focused on the movement and sensation in the feet or any other object that would be arising during walking, then I could attain quite a deep state of concentration. Another advantage of walking meditation is the fact that the object, that is the sensation and movement of the feet, is a very distinct or obvious object. Because the movement of the foot in walking is a much bigger a movement than, let's say, the rising and falling movement of the abdomen in the sitting meditation. So one can more easily uh, be aware of that movement, more easily focus on that movement. And lastly, another advantage is that for most meditators, the movement of the foot is a neutral object. It's not really attractive or pleasant, and it's not really repulsive or unpleasant. It is said in the scriptures that concentration built upon a neutral feeling is strong and long-lasting. So in my own practice, when I finally went to sit after a really focused walking meditation, I could see the difference very clearly. Already at the beginning of the sit, the mind was very focused and clear. And this made well up for the extra effort needed to keep doing the walking meditation for an enough long period of time, let's say 45 minutes or an hour, sometimes even a bit more than an hour.
in regard to walking meditation in combination with the sitting meditation, Sayadaw Upandita, the Burmese meditation master, has said, a yogi, a meditator, who does not practice walking meditation before sitting is like a car with a run-down battery. So whenever possible, it's good to do the walking meditation first and then doing the sitting meditation. So besides all these benefits and advantages, walking meditation is simply another, simply an integral part of meditation, especially of the Vipassana meditation practice. In the same way as we watch sensations, thoughts, emotions or sounds and so on in the sitting, so can we watch the sensations, the thoughts, the sounds, the emotions during the walking. The same insights into, for example, anicca, dukkha and anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self can be gained in the walking meditation as they can be realized in the sitting meditation. There is nothing that makes the sitting meditation inherently better than the walking meditation. And now I will go to the third aspect. Talk, I will talk about the nature of walking meditation, including the insights or mentioning some insights that can be gained from the walking meditation. I found it interesting and also a bit surprising that the Buddha did not give any detailed instructions for walking meditation. But I'm sure he must have given some instructions to the nuns, to the monks. Later teachers have given more detailed instructions for the walking meditation, usually based on their own experience. So nowadays, there are quite a number of different instructions of how to practice walking meditation. When I was in Burma practicing with Saito Ujanaka, there I learned the method of practicing walking meditation as um, it was handed down by Mahasi Sayadaw. My teacher Sayadaw Ujanaka was a direct disciple of Mahasi Sayadaw. 
And so in this method for the walking meditation based on Mahasi Sayadaw, meditators are instructed to pay close attention to the movement, movement and sensations in the feet as they are uh, walking. Just to give you some idea of these uh, instructions. So meditators are first uh, advised to pay attention to the step as a whole, just making a step and being aware of that, the next step with the other foot. Then later on, two parts to each step can be observed. Like making the step and putting the foot down on the floor. And then with the other foot, um, making the step, putting it down. After that, one can divide each step into three parts, which are then the lifting of the foot, then the pushing forward of the foot, and the dropping movement, putting the foot down. Four parts can be observed, including the touching with the ground. Then it would be the lifting, the pushing, the dropping, and the touching then the pressing on the floor can be included as a fifth part. Then it's the lifting, the pushing, dropping, touching, pressing. One could even make more uh, divisions, take it further apart, but we leave it as with that. Only to mention what also then uh, will become clearer is the intentions before the movements. And so as more and more parts of the steps are observed, the meditators naturally uh, slow down. Because if one is walking fast, one cannot observe all these different parts of the movement very clearly. It's like if we are looking for a certain street while driving the car, then we cannot drive very fast because then we cannot read the street signs. So we need to slow down that we are able to read the street signs. So what insights, what understanding can be gained from the walking meditation? Generally, as I've already mentioned, one can come to understand the three general characteristics, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. But what I, was, what, I, what, I, what I found 
also very powerful was the fact that in the walking meditation, the four primary elements can be experienced quite clearly and easily. Marcia has talked about these four primary elements in her talk last Friday. She has called them the four great elements or the four great essentials. And she has not only talked about these elements, but she has also given us the op opportunity to experience them directly in our body. So the walking meditation offers a great opportunity to realize these four primary elements, to realize them as a direct and intuitive experience rather than an intellectual understanding. Just to mention them again, these four great elements, four primary elements are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the wind element. And these four elements are not to be taken real earth or real fire or real wind or real water but earth water fire and wind stand for certain qualities that can be found in these elements as Marcia has also mentioned the earth element stands for the qualities of hardness and softness the water element stands for fluidity, flowing, and cohesion. The fire element stands for heat, but also cold, warmth. We could also call it the element of temperature. And the wind element stands for the specific qualities of movement, of vibration, and also for support. So how these four primary elements can be directly experienced in the walking meditation, I want to explain it with an example. Let's say a meditator observes a step in four parts. The lifting movement, the pushing movement, the dropping movement, and the touching sensation. So experiencing the movements of lifting, of pushing and dropping one is directly experiencing the wind element. It stands for movement. And then when the foot 
touches the ground, maybe one feels the hardness of the ground. So just being aware of this hardness, just feeling it's hard. So this experience uh, is the direct experience of the earth element. Or if one, let's say, is walking outside in summer on the hot pavement, barefoot, when one puts the foot down, maybe it's very hot. And so then experiencing the heat, that would be a manifestation of the fire element. Or when one feels some kind of a stickiness when touching the, the ground. So that stickiness would be the water ele element as a manifestation of uh, cohesion. Of course, one does not have to analyze it and think, ah, oh, hardness, yes, that Yes, it belongs to the earth element, so I'm experiencing the earth element. It's just this direct experiencing experience of feeling the hardness. That is important to know. So in this example, these the four primary elements can be experienced in the true nature as they really are, as they manifest, as we can feel them, experience them. So it's this direct personal and intuitive uh, understanding of it. It's no longer just a concept or intellectual understanding. And experiencing these four primary elements as they really are, as a direct experience, so we get away from the level of concepts and come to the level of ultimate reality. So again, to give an example of what is the conceptual level and what is the absolute, absolute or ultimate level. Like in the beginning of walking meditation, a meditator may perceive that his or her foot is making the step. So there is clearly a notion of the foot is making a step, or even my foot is taking a step. My right foot is moving, my left foot is moving. Or the form of the foot might be very distinct, very clearly perceived. There is clearly this thing we call foot with this and this shape that is making the movement. So there 
In this case, one is clearly still on the conceptual level. My foot is uh, taking a step. But later on in the practice, one may lose the notion of a foot. One may lose the notion of the form of the foot. And so when the foot, let's say, is lifted, pushed forward and dropped, then what is known, what is observed, is simply movement. A lifting movement is uh, known, one is aware of a forward movement, one is aware of a downward movement. So then this concept of the foot or my foot is moving um, has disappeared. And so this is a shift from moving from the conventional level to the level of absolute reality. Sometimes it also happens that meditators even completely lose the notion um, of a foot. All that is known is just movement happening. A lifting movement is happening, a forward movement is happening, and so on. So there's no longer any notion of a foot or a leg that does, does this movement. And it can also happen that even the notion of the whole body disappears. One completely loses any notion that there is a body, a physical body with this and this shape, but one just knows that certain movements are happening. So then one is clearly on the level of absolute uh, reality. So besides being aware of the movement of the foot or the sensations experienced in the foot, one can also become aware of the mind that is aware of the foot or the movement. So then one um, realizes that it, that it is the mind that knows. It's the mind that is aware of something. It's the mind that experiences different qualities such as hardness or softness or movement. And besides the mind that which knows, then there is the body or physical things happening, such as movement or hardness or softness, lightness. But physical phenomena do not have the ability to know or perceive. And so with this understanding, one comes to differentiate between mind and body.
between mental phenomena and physical phenomena. So one comes to clearly see and understand that the mind and body is not the same. One sees clearly that there are two different processes, closely related and dependent on each other, but they are different uh, phenomena. Something else that can be discovered and experienced in walking meditation are the intentions, which I already briefly mentioned. And I also mentioned them yesterday morning in the morning reflection. So it's the intentions that cause the movement to happen, or intention precedes every movement. Or in other words, movements never happen just by themselves. A movement does not happen without any cause or condition. So there is a cause, there is a condition for every movement that we perform with this body. And this cause, this condition, is the intention. So with this discovery or this relationship between intentions and movements, one comes to uh, realize the cause and effect relationship or conditionality the relationship of conditioning and the conditioned. I already said that also with the practice of walking meditation, one can come to an understanding of the three general characteristics, anicca, Dukkha and Anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, or the impersonal nature of phenomena. So, just to give you an idea of how this can uh, come about, In the walking meditation, let's say, observing three parts to each step, the lifting, the pushing, the dropping movement. And so, closely observing each of these movements, we come to see that the lifting movement of the foot arises and then comes to an end. It disappears. Then the pushing forward movement starts, comes to an end. And then the dropping movement arises, begins, and also has an end. And so each of these movements has arisen, 
and then disappeared. And once a movement has disappeared, it's gone. It's gone forever, completely, no longer there. So this can be one way of understanding that also movements are impermanent. They are not long-lasting, not everlasting. They have no substantiality to them. Then in regard to the unsatisfactoriness, suffering, dukkha, there is one stage in the practice where a meditator just sees the disappearance of objects. So whatever is uh, noted, whatever one is aware of, basically one just sees how it disappears. A thought disappears, movement disappears, an emotion disappears, the sound, it just disappears. And so also in the walking meditation, one just sees the disappearance of these movements or touching sensation or the hardness that is experienced. And so when a meditator just sees this constant disappearance, usually the mind freaks out and fear arises. And meditators start to feel oppressed by this constant disappearance. So there is no stability. Everything just disappears. Nothing to hold on to. Nothing can be grasped. So the mind has nothing to really hold on to, to grab. And so this is very unsatisfactory, very uh, also disheartening uh, for meditators. So they do not see anything good in all this uh, disappearance. Then in regard to anatta, the impersonality of all phenomena, not self-nature, So, for example, as we watch the movements of the foot, we come to realize that these movements arise and disappear on their own accord. We see that we have lastly no absolute control over these movements. We see that an intention causes a movement to happen and then a movement disappears again. And so with this, it becomes more and more obvious that these phenomena are impersonal processes, just processes based on causes and conditions, seeing cause and effect. So, for example, when one's concentration is really good, mindfulness sharp, then the movement of the foot seems to happen as if by itself. It feels like the foot is automatically lifted, then automatically pushed forward, 
automatically. It drops. I remember when this happened to me in my practice, it felt a bit odd, felt a bit strange. It was as if I was being walked. And then an image arose. It was like I was a puppet on strings. It felt like an invisible string had been attached to my foot and then an invisible force was pulling the string uh, upwards and thereby my foot was lifted. And then this invisible string moved the foot forward and it let it down again. And so in this way, the walking process seemed to be so impersonal. There was no I, there was no person, no self that was walking. But it felt as if it was walking. <clears throat> or when we also notice the intentions that precede the movement, then we see so clearly that the intention is the cause for the movement to happen. Without the intention, the foot would not be lifted. In my practice, I have found that the walking meditation was incredibly helpful to understand the impersonal nature of this body-heart-mind process. And the key to this understanding of not-self, the key to this intuitive understanding, not an intellectual understanding, was the careful and detailed awareness of the movements and the intentions during the walking meditation, but also during the general activities. I think if I had only practiced sitting meditation, then this intuitive and direct understanding of not-self would have taken much longer to arise. Something else that can be experienced in the walking meditation become quite obvious is the momentariness of phenomena. The fact that they only last for a very short moment. We know from old films when movement is filmed in slow motion then we can see it actually as uh, uh, little separate movements. We can notice this in old films, like in films of Charlie Chaplin. So there, the movements are not smooth. They are kind of a bit jerky. And having good concentration and sharp mindfulness is actually like a magnifying glass. 
or can be like a microscope. So then one can see that what we, uh, what we think of movement as something smooth happening from here to here is actually not that smooth, that it is actually many separate little um, movements happening one after the other in very quick succession. During my initial years in Burma, practicing beside Ujjanaka, there was another uh, foreign meditator, a Dutch man. And he followed Sayadaw's advice, did the walking meditation quite slowly, observed, observed many different parts to each step, and one afternoon, when he did the walking meditation, he noticed that the movement of lifting, pushing, dropping was no longer a smooth movement, as he had always experienced it his whole life. And so as the movement got a bit jerky, he thought, mm, something is not right. I have to get it right again, I have to make it smooth. And so he paid very careful attention and tried to make a smooth movement, but it would not be smooth. It would get even more jerky. And he tried better, uh, more. And uh, as the more he tried, the less the movements were smooth. So he just had this very jerky lifting movements, jerky pushing forwards movement, jerky uh, dropping movements. And he got very uh, concerned, also very uh, frustrated. And by the evening, he thought, if I continue with the practice, I'm getting crazy. So probably it's better that I leave the meditation center, that I go back home, because I don't want to get crazy. So he made up his mind that he would leave the next day. So in the next morning, he went to see the Sayadaw and said, Sayadaw, I have decided to go back home because I think I'm uh, going to get crazy, so I better go home. And Saito said, well, wait a minute. Why do you want to go home? Why do you think you're getting crazy? And so the meditator related his experiences from the day before, saying, I cannot have the movement smooth anymore. It's just this jerky movement. It falls apart in smaller little movements. So that's why, yeah, I'm getting crazy. So I go before I get really crazy. And then Sayadaw looked at him and said, no, no, you don't need to go home. You stay here because you're actually not getting crazy, but you are recovering from craziness. 
and then Sayadaw explained to him that actually what he was discovering was correct, that it was um, more correct understanding of how movement really is. That perceiving movement as a smooth movement from A to B is, a, is, is wrong. It's just, just a very conceptual understanding of movement, but not the way it actually happens in reality. So then the meditator was reassured, he stayed and he continued uh, to practice there. So, in this last section, mentioning some of the insights and understanding that can be gained from the practice of walking meditation are only just some of many more possible insights and understandings that can be gained. But just to give you some ideas of how walking meditation uh, can deepen your understanding of the real nature of phenomena. I will close this talk with words from Sayadaw Usilananda. He also was a student of Mahasi Sayadaw and he lived and taught for many years in the Tathagata uh, Center in San Jose, in California. He passed away in 2005, 10 years ago. And after the quote, we will sit still for a few moments. Walking meditation is conducive to spiritual development. It is as powerful as mindfulness of breathing or mindfulness of the rising and falling of the abdomen. Walking meditation is an efficient tool to help us remove mental defilements. Walking meditation can help us gain insight into the nature of things and we should practice it as diligently as we practice sitting meditation or any other kind of meditation. Thank you for your kind attention. And now we will finish with the reflections on the sharing of. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.